Romans chapter 12 open in front of you and I would like us to think about community. Community is quite a buzzword. It has been for at least a decade. If you are asking for money from the government, if you put the word community in your application, you're much more likely to get the money. And of course, the current cliche is something which is a vibrant community hub. Not quite sure what that means, but lots of things are it. Uh, it's something that's valued. People value something to do with community, particularly if you can put the word vibrant to it, or indeed the word hub, and it's considered desirable. Uh, and the, the world is looking for something like a vibrant community hub. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ aims to produce, well, not those words, but something very like it, something which is beautiful and active doesn't use the word hub, the Bible uses the word church or churches and if you like you could extend that to saying a church family. The gospel aims to produce beautiful and active churches which live and work together as a church family. Now let's go just go back to the world because although the world values community it doesn't really know how to produce it despite commendable attempts. So let's not, be, uh, let's not be cynical about it. The world tries very hard, but it, uh, it, it, it use community, but they don't always work. The world doesn't know how to do it, but the church does. The church has sometimes failed too, but the church is meant to do better and can do better and does do better because the church is the one institution on earth that by the help and the grace of God can produce what all human beings long for, true, beautiful, active community. And that's what Paul's talking about as he moves from Romans uh, 9, 10, 11 into Romans 12. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I have to say, I think this is one of the most important pieces of Scripture in the New Testament. I think it's so important, and we'll do our best to look at it. Sort of just, there's a, we certainly won't exhaust this. So my aim sentence, you see I have learned something from that conference, is think spiritually serve actively and by the time we get to the end I would like I would like to have given you reasons to think spiritually and to serve actively and I've got three sections number one mind number two body number three actions following the paragraphs of Romans 12 so let's look first of all at mind so Romans 12 says Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And my first point is mind, because there's a lot there about thinking and about attitude. So we have this word spiritual in verse 1, which is a, a logikos, which is quite, although it's translated spiritual, uh, if you saw the word logikos, you would think, oh, that must be Greek for logical. I think there is something there about thinking. It's a reasonable response. And then in verse 2, you will have noticed it talks about the renewing of your mind. And then in verse 3, it talks about the way you think of yourself. Think with sober judgment. So let's look first of all then at the mind. And so my first point about this is that he is saying that the attitude of mind which we have first is to be a mental appreciation that we are saved by grace and by mercy and by compassion. Now, you see, the world can't begin at this point because it's no, got no, no idea about this, but this is where Christian thinking starts. So that's why he's, he's, he begins his chapter. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So the first thing is to appreciate God's mercy. He talks about the compassions of God or the mercy of God. And I would like to refer us back just to see how much he's said about mercy. So in chapter 11, verse 32, just a few verses earlier, he had said that God's way of salvation as he developed his plan through history made absolutely sure that everybody was in the position that they needed mercy, that no racial group could say, oh, well, they need mercy, but we don't. We're okay. And he focused this particularly on the Jews. Uh, 11 verse 32, God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. The Gentiles who were um, ignorant and rebellious anyway, they need mercy. And the Jews who were privileged and the elite uh, and knew what was what, well, they made this hideous mistake of rejecting the Messiah, so they're disobedient and they need mercy. So you see, uh, he says, that's the situation we're all in. If anybody is going to be saved, they need to be saved by mercy. And then look at chapter 9, verse 14, which goes right back in his argument. And he says, how does it all work? What is God's policy? Well, he quotes what God says to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says, that's the way it all works. There isn't a single person who can say to God, well, I'm going to be saved because I deserve it and I've worked so hard and I've done so well. It's all mercy. God has compassion on whom he has compassion. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to be saved 
by grace it's got to be compassion and it's got to come from God so my first question is have you got this settled in your own mind as you come to God are you thinking to yourself thank you Lord for having mercy on me because insofar as we're thinking well actually I haven't done too badly I've lived the Christian life pretty well uh, if we're thinking it in that sort of way then we'll forget mercy and we will completely miss out on the attitude the vital attitude that the whole church thing is built on salvation does not have its roots in my achievements my personal qualities not even my gifts and talents but God's mercy so I ask you first of all whether you are agreeing with that whether in your mind you've got that quite clear it's by grace by mercy sometimes I'm not as grateful as I should be but I should be grateful and I've got so much to be grateful for if you had been to the doctor and the doctor had diagnosed you with something relatively trivial you know I don't know think of something relatively trivial you would take the medicine and you say well that was good that sort itself out and you wouldn't be particularly grateful but if you'd been to the doctor and he'd said hang on a minute you've got a terminal illness we need to rush you to hospital straight away and you've been rushed to hospital and they performed some drastic surgery and saved your life you'd be grateful salvation is not just a sticking plaster on some relatively minor problem in our lives it's life and death that's what Jesus Christ achieved so let's come on now to the mental attitude of gratitude in view of God's mercy he as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God this is your spiritual act of worship and he puts together some words normally are to do with the temple so the word of um, well offering a sacrifice offer your bodies as living sacrifices and the idea of something which is pleasing which is there in verse 2 his good pleasing and perfect will and you have it in verse 1 uh, pleasing to God and then in verse 1 the idea of worship he says if you are grateful then the deep response is thank you so much Lord what can I do but to offer myself to you without reservation all that I am all that I have Lord Jesus I give it to you and he says that's where it all that, that's the attitude of gratitude that is absolutely essential to everything that happens afterwards I was thinking of the uh, the woman, there's a, a woman in the gospel story who wept and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and poured expensive ointment on him and everybody thought, what a you know, weird woman, you know, she's, what's she doing this for? And Jesus saw that this extraordinarily generous, lavish 
outpouring of gratitude and thankfulness and expense was because she knew she'd been forgiven a lot. And Jesus said she loved much because she'd been forgiven much. And I think that's, she would agree with what Paul writes at the beginning here. Uh, she would say, yeah, I certainly want to offer my whole self as a living sacrifice, please, holy and pleasing to God. What else can I do? This is the worship I offer to God. And uh, whether you say it's spiritual or reasonable or logical, uh, whatever way, she says, well, that's, you know, however you analyze it, that's what I want to do. And I ask ourselves whether we have understood the same mental attitude. We've been forgiven so much, we've had a life or death intervention by God's grace. What can we do apart from say, Lord, I'm yours totally? I not think of myself to be, have very much to offer, but whatever I have to offer, I offer it to you. And I would ask you whether you would say yes to that, whether you'd be prepared to repeat that, whether you'd be prepared to pray that even as we're sitting together just now. And then thirdly, to do with the mental attitude, this mental attitude reshapes us afresh from the inside. So he, he moves on, you see, in verse 2, don't be conformed, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he does some interesting things in the original language. It's sort of so don't be squeezed into the mold that the world tries to squeeze you into. But instead be be formed into another shape, be morphed, if you like, into another shape by the renewing of your mind. See how important the mind is here, what, what, we, what we allow ourselves to think, what we tell ourselves to think. And he says that, uh, well, it gives a rather beautiful picture, doesn't it? Uh, the world, with its mold and the way it tries to shape our minds, is characterized by ingratitude and aggression and competitiveness and pride and self and that forms a mind in a certain way but he says don't let the world form your mind that way but have your mind transformed renewed so we're thinking of attitudes like humility where a Christian can't possibly look down on other people and say I'm so much better than you are because a Christian knows that he or she has been saved uh, as John Cropley used to say from the guttermost to the uttermost uh, Christians don't have reason to be always complaining and rebelling against God but always to be grateful and Christians have a mind uh, which is able to think well there but for the grace of God go I which gives compassion and Christians have a mind which is not resentful of God and angry with God but willing and obedient and he says this is your mind these are the things that shape your mind and he goes on to say that if this is happening then you find 
that you are able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And just to put that quite briefly, there are things to seek, things to desire, things that are the way forward. And what he's saying is that God has his priority of things to seek, and God has his priority of things to, that are desirable, and God has his ideas, if you like, of the way ahead. And if your mind is being shaped, as we've just been describing, that you will find that you, what you think about this will begin to coincide with what God thinks about it. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think that's a big sentence. It's saying that the shape of life that's ahead, the decisions and uh, choices and situations God has, you will begin to find that you can approach them and say, well, I can see there's God's will in this. I can see which is what God's way forward in this. I can see what's desirable in this. And you will test and approve God's will. So that was my first heading on mind. Let's go to the second heading, which is body. Number one, mind. Attitude. Number two, body. I don't mean your body. I mean us as a body, the corporate living of the Christian. Now, the art of driving a car as you may or may not realize, is not, in fact, going as fast as you want anywhere you want. The art of driving a car is being aware of the people around you. So there are people in front that you're not supposed to attempt to drive through. There are people behind who might be taken by surprise if you suddenly veer off course. There are people on either side who are expecting you to do certain things but not to do other things. And the art of driving is being aware of the people around you. And so too, the the beauty of living the Christian life is not just doing your own thing, but coordinating and cooperating and fitting in and blessing other people. The Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation, but in community. Let's see what he says. Verse 3, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. And you can see what he's saying there. He's saying that like a human body is one thing, one person with different parts of the body, hands, feet, liver, pancreas, brain, ears, big toe, etc. They're all different, They're very different, aren't they? but they all work together, he says, that's how it is in the Christian church. So verse four, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, 
so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. And I hope you can see the significance of that thought. It's quite a radical, powerful thought. So three words. Uh, Number one, totality. There are no exceptions to this. He he doesn't say, well, of course, uh, in the Christian life, many of us form the Christian body. Many of us form the body of Christ, but not all of us. He doesn't make any exceptions like that, does he? He says, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. There aren't exceptions. And I want to put a challenge in your mind if you have always been thinking, well, I'm a bit of an exception. I always think that's a dangerous thinking when people say, well, I, I can't, I'm not like other people are, I'm, I'm a bit of an exception. I, mean, I get there are exceptional circumstances, but what Paul is saying here, well, if you're a Christian, this includes you as much as it includes any other Christian. You are a member of the body of Christ. You belong to all the other Christians and they all belong to you. And you so if you're thinking, yeah, well, it's all right for that lot, but I'm a bit different, then stop thinking that. Stop thinking it. How dare you think that? The Bible says we are all in this together. Uh, we all belong, each member belongs to all the others. So, number one, totality. Number two, unity. There is one body with many members. So, he is talking about a, a unity, a togetherness. He hasn't allowed any Christians to opt out of it. This, this doesn't apply to me. And he doesn't set aside different sections and say, well, we'll do this in young adults, but we won't think of all the whole church. He says, no, it's all together. There is a unity of the church, and there is a diversity. He says, the, the, the marvelous thing about this is we're all different but that's what brings us all together. Like the parts of the body, they all do different things, but they all work together. And he says in verse four, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And verse six, we have different gifts. So notice then what he's saying about differences. Uh, He actually includes himself in this. In verse 3 he says, By the grace given me, I say this to you. I've been given the, the, the particular unusual gift of being an apostle. So that's what I'm supposed to do, and that's what I'm going to do by speaking to you in the following way. And he, he, he talks about the proportion of faith, which I think is the same way, is, sorry, is a different way of saying the same thing. Verse three, uh, 
Think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I think he's saying the same thing. You've been given different gifts or different grace or different faith. So where God has put you, that's where you're supposed to be operating. And this, it seems to me, is why he says in verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Think of yourself with sober judgment, which uh, excludes at least two things. Uh, The thinking of yourself too highly, so you think, well, it all depends on me. I'm the only one in this church who ever does anything. Uh, If I didn't do do stuff, then it would all fall apart. Uh, He says, well, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought because uh, we've all got, got gifts and you're supposed to have sober judgment about that. On the other hand, he also, it seems to me, is uh, offering a, a measure of uh, rebuke, really, to people who say, well, I'm no use. I can't do anything in the, in the church. I'm just a complete spare part. And he say, no, that's not sober judgment. That would be to contradict the whole idea of all the church belonging together we belong together and every part, every member has a part to play. It's just a question of finding what it is. So rather than thinking it all depends on me or rather than thinking I'm no use, we should be thinking something like this. I'm a sinner. I've been saved by Jesus Christ I can't do anything as well as Jesus deserves, but I do some things for him of my ability, and if he would like me to do that, then I'm more than willing to chip in my contribution. And that's what he's about the life of the church. Think of yourself with sober judgment. Can I say that this is the opposite of consumerism? Consumerism, in the way I'm meaning it, is like when you go shopping and you go to this shop and you say, oh, such and such is on offer. I like that. Uh, I'll have, uh, have some of those. Buy one, get one free. Um, and then the next week it's not doing that. And you think, well, in that case, I'll go to another shop and, uh, oh, they've got these on offer. And that's what consumers do. That's what consumers are supposed to do. They're supposed to find what suits them and uh, the idea of being loyal to any particular brand isn't really expected these days but church isn't like that church isn't consumerism church isn't well I'll try this church and the music's really good oh they've changed the band well I'll go to this church now and uh, I, I really feel good about this church oh it's all changed well I'll go to this church now it, it, that's consumerism And Paul isn't giving an inch to that, is he? He's saying, we all fit together, think of yourself with sober judgment, and play your part. So that was body, thinking body. And thirdly and lastly, action. So we've gone from mind, which is our attitude and thinking body uh, which is everybody I know we have different uh, 
slots that we can fit in, different times in the week when we can do different things, but it all comes under the heading of the, of the whole body. And now we move to action. So Paul gives some examples of action. He says, uh, verse 6, we all have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So uh, I've got some thoughts about that list of actions. So number one, notice that he's got two ways of saying the same thing. Sometimes he talks about gift, sometimes he talks about function. They're just two ways of saying the same thing, aren't they? What function does this part of the body have? What function does this person play? It's the same thing as saying, what gift does this person have? We have different gifts, we have different functions. Same, two ways of saying the same thing. Number two, this list of gifts or functions or activities is not a complete list. Not a complete list. So, you know, if doing church cleaning isn't on that list, doesn't mean that that isn't a spiritual gift. Uh, if uh, putting up the hymn numbers isn't on the list, doesn't mean that that isn't a proper contribution, etc., etc. There are other lists of gifts in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, and even then I don't think he's exhausting the lists, he's just giving examples of different ways that people can act and be useful in the church. And as in real life, there's a flexibility about it which uh, Paul doesn't stop to explain, but I think as we uh, experience teaches us that people can have overlapping gifts and a gift can expand and contract and fit in in a certain situation and maybe fit in less in another situation and so on. Number three, he is describing the way the church or the community or the body of Christ operates. Now, sometimes it used to be said that if you weren't a charismatic church you didn't believe in spiritual gifts that's silly. No church can operate without gifts. Without gifts of God, without gifts of the Spirit, no church can operate without them. Uh, and that's exactly what Paul is describing here. So if you are unsure about it, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We, we need the gifts that the Spirit gives. We can't operate any other way. Point number four most of the gifts, if not all the gifts that he describes here are fairly ordinary abilities or human abilities put into the hands of God. So as a particular example, uh, the person who is, whose gift is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. 
well let's assume that's financial uh, that is really a product of what sort of job they've got or what money they've inherited uh, it's a very ordinary human thing but it's put into the hands of God most of these gifts if not all of them are ordinary or human abilities in the hands of God serving for example contributing to the needs of others I know that when people talk about gifts they get a bit hung up on what on what are, what are found in other lists, for example, tongues or exorcism or prophecy. But Paul says, well, those are, you know, okay, we could discuss those another time. But the main line sort of things here, which are the gifts of God, are things like, well, as you see, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, uh, showing mercy, and things like that. And my fifth point, that the possession of a gift is, generally speaking, a call to use it. The possession of a gift is, generally speaking, a call to use it. It's not, there's more to be said than that, which he goes on to say, that gifts need to be used in love. And he would have other things to say as well, but generally speaking, the possession of a gift is a call to use it. So... If a man's gift is prophesying, whatever he exactly he meant by that, well, let that person prophesy. If the person has a gift in serving, verse 7, then let them serve. If somebody has a gift of teaching, then let them teach. If somebody is, has a gift of encouraging others, let them encourage. If somebody is in a position to give to the needs of others, then don't wait for God to particularly zap you. If you've got that as a gift, then, then use that gift. Uh, if you have a gift of leadership, then do it in the right way, diligently. If it's a gift of getting alongside people and showing mercy, perhaps helping in a quiet way, then do that and do it cheerfully. Now, what, does, what, what else can we say about these gifts? Well, we can say that they fall into roughly two categories. The gifts of saying things and the gifts of doing things. So for the saying things, I think we would say prophesying, teaching, encouraging, leading are saying gifts, word gifts, word ministry. And then there is also serving, verse 7, contributing, showing mercy, things like that, which I think were basically doing gifts. And he says, well, this is what it is. In the church, there are all sorts of gifts, all sorts of functions, all sorts of things that people can do. And the church works as a community as each one does the bit that they can do. And I ask, have you thought about this? Have you thought about what God has given you the ability to do? Because he's given you something, for sure. Uh, and the general principle is, if you've got that ability, 
then do seek in the right way to use it. Don't make Christianity a spectator sport where you sit and cheer other people as they run round the track, but it's a community life. Now we'll look at this a bit more next week, but this is my aim sentence. I'm not saying, and Paul isn't saying, we want people to be running round like headless chickens. He doesn't just say serve actively. He says, first of all, think spiritually. Think about God's mercy. Think about how much, you, how much he's done for you and offer yourself to him. And in offering yourself to him, look around you at the possibilities there are. Maybe bigger, maybe smaller. Not everybody has the same, but there's something that you can do.